Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin, and this is a part two episode of a two-part series, installment, whatever you want to call it, that we're doing on competition law and how competition law works in Canada. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, I recommend going back and listening to it. It should be the previous episode in our feed. And with us again this week for part two is Professor Jennifer Quaid. She's an associate professor and vice dean research in the civil law section at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. And last week we went over what the purpose of competition law is, why we have it, and how we've tried to implement it here in Canada. Some of the differences between what we've done here and what the Americans have done with their competition law rules. This week we're going to go into some of the specific cases that have come up here in Canada recently, particularly the deal between Rogers and Shaw. And we're also going to talk about some of the proposed changes that the federal government has talked about bringing in to our competition law regime and what that might mean for Canada's economy. So Jennifer, why don't we start with that Rogers-Shaw deal that uh, I think probably everyone listening to this has has heard about. Talk to us about how that unfolded and how the different parties that were involved in that acquisition, the different regulators, uh, the commissioner of the courts, how did they view this case through the framework of our competition law? How was it applied to this case that allowed the deal ultimately to proceed? Roger Shaw is an interesting case for a lot of reasons. First up, it really is the biggest merger that was challenged. So Superior Propane and ICG was pretty big. And interestingly, it has some parallels with Roger Shaw, two big players in a basically a Canadian space. No foreign pressure. Uh, propane wasn't quite as regulated or regulated differently than telecom is. You know, propane ha- had a lot of safety regulation, that kind of thing, but not the same way telecom has you know, regulations about access and about certain services you have to provide and so on. So the first thing is it's giant. Two Canadian titans, already pretty well known for their corporate cultures, uh, getting together in a market that has essentially, it had four big players and we're going uh, four to three. Number one buying number four this time. And what's the second sort of important thing so, so there's no foreign competition right this the, this is not a foreign competition space this is a 100% canadian deal which is why it was so contentious right there's no us antitrust division intervening and also challenging the merger which is often what's happened in super big deals right the europeans or the americans get in with and then you have allies or supporters who are doing a lot of heavy lifting for you here no one was going to come to the competition bureau's rescue like the this, this deal had to be challenged in Canada and only in Canada. Second, telecom is regulated, regulated far more than many other industries. And that overlap is, I think, at the heart of why people have a hard time understanding the decision. Now, I'm not going to try to defend the assessment made by the tribunal for two reasons. First of all, I didn't hear all the evidence and I did not sit on Zoom for like eight weeks. <laughs> I, I listened to certain highlights, but I didn't listen to it all. I've read the decision. One of the things is also the tribunal, and that's the nature of these proceedings. There is always a a confidential part 
and a and a public part and often some of the critical pricing information is not accessible to those of us on the outside so you don't get the full picture of what mm. was going on that's that's another factor what's interesting here is is that the CRTC basically said this is okay we can, we're okay with this so you already set yourself up that the one that the regulator the designated regulator has already kind of taken a position the competition bureau didn't see it that way and challenged the merger and you have to remember sort of dial back when rogers and shaw first came in it was just rogers by shaw that's it and for sure right away there was the question of freedom mobile that was right up there and the bureau pretty quickly said you know i we think there's a divestiture that you need to do and typically what happens in pre-notification is the parties go in and they already know where their weak points are and if they've got good lawyers and they know that they're going to have to play ball they've got a few plan b's and c's and d's to say well how about we sell this or how about we do this and most problems are solved before it goes to the tribunal I don't know the full background here, but clearly there was an unwillingness to consider divestiture, at least in the first instance. Also, Rogers had a series of corporate problems. They had some you know, issues with their board of governors, and uh, sorry, their board of directors. And maybe that added to the complexity um, and maybe that added to the tone. I don't know. But it's nearly a year later that finally they're like, okay, fine. And they propose some buyers that really do not meet the expectations of the Bureau, who at this point is pretty much getting ready for litigation. So we're into early well, I'm trying to get early 2022. Uh, so by spring, I guess March, they've proposed these private equity type buyers. And the reason why that is not received really well <laughs> is because in the past, when fourth players have been and this is this has been like the unicorn in Canada trying to keep that fourth player in the, in the mix. It hasn't worked out that well because private equity they have different incentive structures. They're usually in there to make a rate of return over seven years and then they want to sell, and that has never seemed to work or terminate in something stable. So the bureau was like, no, we're not going to start out with something we know hasn't worked before. And it was obvious that Videotone was in the background. Opinions differ, and I don't know. Obviously, because I'm on the outside, I don't know what the actual facts are. Some people say, oh, well, the deal tone was always there in the background. They always knew it was a possibility. And others say, well, but Rogers basically didn't give them the time of day. And there is some history between them as well. All this to say that by the time May 2022 comes, Rogers and Shaw still have not put together a proposal to divest freedom, which was the main stumbling block. Now, I also was not party to the commissioner's evidence and to his assessment or his team's assessment. They wanted to block the merger entirely, and I guess they had their reasons to do that. I don't know whether they really had all the evidence to support that, whether that was a stretch. Sometimes you do push. The big piece was freedom. Nothing is moving. May they file an application under uh, Section 92 of the Act. That's the merger challenge provision. And they're like, here's our case. And the case is based on Rogers by Shaw no divestiture. And at that point, I'm like, wow, you know, I mean, I think they have a pretty good case because just one buying four doesn't seem like a good idea. What didn't make sense to me was the was the regulatory blessing of it. But, you know, that's a conversation for another day. We go six weeks, roughly, 
uh, until there is a filing of a, of a defense. And then very shortly thereafter, there's the announcement of the divestiture to Videoton. And that, of course, suddenly changes everything. And what Rogers and Shaw want to do is they want to say, oh, well, this has always been the deal. You know, kind of the 1984 thing. We've always, we've always wanted to divest and we've always wanted to sell the Videoton. It's like, no, you haven't. But anyway, that's what they do. And the claim, and here is again where I can't know the real facts. People have very strong opinions on both sides. Some say, well, the commissioner should have known that, should have anticipated that, should have been ready to pivot. Uh, my own sense is that they announced the deal in mid-June, but the documents don't arrive till early August. And you can't really assess the competitive impact until you see the terms of the deal, what's going on. Anyway, be that as it may, the commissioner decides to pursue the strategy that they're challenging the whole deal and that they reject the ability of Rogers and Shaw to essentially change things up when you're already in litigation and to sort of move the dice. And I can get into the weeds about why that matters in a second. Uh, I think that that is the first problem, is that you now have two sides who are arguing completely different things and their evidence doesn't really line up very well. The second thing is that freedom was the biggest problem. And because you once the and the tribunal sent pretty strong signals pretty early on. Again, I don't agree with what they did, but you know, that's they're the ones who made the decision. They say, uh, you know, really we need to look at the deal that's on the table. Yes, they changed late in the game, but part of the problem is the commissioner didn't complain about it not strongly enough didn't ask for the legal question that was tied to that to be decided in advance. So they're proceeding through the trial where the commissioner believes they're entitled to challenge the old deal. And Rogers and Shaw say, no, 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 it's only the new deal. So you already don't have a problem of the evidence lining up. And you could see early on that the commissioner was that that taking that position was not being well received by the tribunal. And I think from a strategy perspective, that was maybe not a, a good decision, but you know, it's, it's easy to say in hindsight, right? What that also means is that the way the evidence is assessed, I think, makes it harder to follow. And I think once you take freedom out of the picture, the little bits of other competitive problems that might have added on don't look as impressive, right? If you take the whole thing, well, but let's say freedom's gone, you've taken a big chunk of the competitive problem away. And I think that, that there just wasn't much left. The other mm. thing to remember going back to relevant market, is that this was about Alberta and BC and basically only about you know, consumer, um, consumer clients. So you removed whole segments like business consumers. They took out the Ontario market, which was originally a concern. And so all of a sudden, the analysis is very, very specific in very specific areas. And part of the thing is that Shaw and Rogers don't have a lot of overlap in Western Canada small editorial comment, that's because they had this nice arrangement where they didn't go on each other's territory. But that would right. be a cartel problem, not a merger problem. That's why they fit so well together. Then the other part that I think when you read the judgment, which is probably going over most people's heads, I found it really hard to follow, honestly, as well, is that the tribunal takes on faith a lot of what the CRTC says it's doing and takes on faith a lot of the assertions that what the CRTC does works or produces good outcomes, or says, well, they're not doing this anyway, and we can't you know, lay the blame for what the, our, the CRTC isn't doing well at the feet of Rogers and Shaw. So a lot of it is the coexistence of this CRTC 
regulating environment and what that really means for competition in telecom, particularly mobile telecommunications, because that's what this was about mostly, you know, what the competitive effects are. And I think there was a lot of deference to what the CRTC does and a lot of, I think, understanding that was based on what was presented by the parties. And I do think that there's, there's when you talk to experts, and I am not an expert in uh, CRTC um, regulation, you talk to experts, they're like, they don't really get how it works. They don't get how it really works. And so if you have a, an assessment of what the regulatory environment is that isn't maybe quite the reflection of how things really go on, that might also affect how you assess the impact of combining number one and number four in that. Mm. A lot of it has to do with the way access is provided and these this MVNO environment because we don't want every mobile telecom operator to have their own set of towers and systems or whatever. Like we don't want like 10 sets of infrastructure. So that does require sharing of infrastructure. The question is, what are the conditions for sharing that? I think that is part of what played into it. But I do think also that just strategically, because the commissioner decided they were going to fight this and not deviate from their position, the tribunal started to show its colors about halfway through. And yeah, I, you know, that's, as I said, armchair quarterback, you can look back and say, oh, well, they should have done that. But I understand their legal objection to allowing essentially what was a backdoor remedy. And the reason that matters is that Rogers and Shaw essentially decided, well, here's what we're prepared to put on the table. And by putting it into their statement of defense, they basically say, well, this is the deal. And it's already got the remedy baked in. The commissioner is not asked to agree with that. Whereas if they had done it before in the pre-notification process, the commissioner would have had to agree. If they'd done a consent agreement to settle the litigation, commissioner would have agreed. But this was a way to avoid having the commissioner agree to the remedy and they get to decide. I think that's what really angered the politicians later. But I don't. I think that their reaction, however, and what they wanted to do about it is not right. But that's, that's sort of what happens. That's why I think it's hard for people to understand. But the deal was not about the entire country. It was not about every market. It was not about every use uh, and service that they provide. So that also colors what, your con- what the conclusions are. Maybe it would be good to get into what some of the proposed changes are to the law, because I think we have a pretty good sense now of what the status quo is. Um, mm-hmm. What is the federal government talking about changing uh, You know, the most important pieces, and how would that play out in practice? What impact would that have in practice? At the moment, we are still waiting for the promised second phase of the modernization of the act. Phase one was done in June 2022. And those were mostly uh, changes around the edges. I can get into those if you want. But what is on the table right now is a very short bill with three changes in it, which everyone, you know, whether they agree or disagree with the need to reform the act a lot or a little bit, agree that this bill is not the second phase of reform. (laughs) Uh, So Bill C-56, which was tabled in September, is the government bill. There are actually two other bills. One was tabled by Ryan Williams of the Conservatives back in June, and the other one was tabled by Jagmeet Singh in September, just before the government bill. What they all have in common is they all attempt to do something about the efficiencies defense. I'll get into that in a minute. But the government bill has three changes. The first is to provide the ability for the commissioner to compel information when 
he's doing market studies. That was a long sought after uh, change that was that was has been asked for a while because the commissioner can't force parties to cooperate and provide information when they're doing a market study as distinct from when they're doing an investigation. And there was a sense that the Bureau would benefit from the ability to do market studies where they really have as complete information as they can. They're under an obligation to protect information that's confidential anyway. So why, you know, why couldn't they do it? So that's the first change. And I will talk about why I think it's very problematic how they did it, not the fact that we're trying to do this, but how they're doing it in a minute. The second change is they want to repeal the efficiencies defense, full stop, nothing else. And then the third thing that they're doing is they're trying to make changes to a provision in the act that, for lack of a better word, is called civil collaboration. So it's a, it's a, a provision that is kind of like a civil version of the cartel provision, but with some differences. It says that you... You can cooperate in some cases with competitors or other parties who are your competitors, but you have to meet certain conditions. Um, and you know, the main one is that you can't be causing a substantial lessening or prevention of competition. So it's assessed essentially like a merger. If you're getting together with your competitors to do something, uh, like a joint venture or whatever, you can't do that if it's going to have a substantial lessening of competition. So that's the sort of threshold. It's a rule of reason uh, type standard. That's the language that's used in places like the U.S. But that, what they've done is they've made some tweaks to that provision. And it's very, very clearly motivated to deal with a situation that emerged in Nova Scotia, where there was a landlord that put a clause in a lease that said, I think it was a Dollarama, you, you know, basically they were prevented from offering certain products if they, if they were um, lower than, I, now I can't remember if it's the Sobeys. I think it was the Sobeys. Anyway, mm, essentially yeah, what that. was, you know, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a contractual situation and they're trying to deal with this in the Competition Act. And you can see, you can sort of see why they're trying to do it at the same time. It's terrible terrible to make changes to a law of general application based on like a specific scenario that's occurred two months ago. It's a terrible way of changing the act. And I'm not sure it's the right way to do it. Most people would suggest that, you know, actually what you need is just to have different different rules regarding how the, the contract is applied or, you know, to, to go at it differently, but not through the Competition Act. Anyway, that's the other thing that they've done. And on the on the, the compelability power, we're coming back full circle to these institutional problems I talked about. The way it's structured is the minister can direct, you know, if the minister directs the commissioner to do a market study, then the, then the bureau can access the powers that are court ordered that allow them to get information. They're called, you know, the provision in, in the Competition Act is called Section 11. And this is the, basically you go to the court and you say, we need these documents and you get a court order. And then people cannot fight, you, know, you can fight the court order, but you're in. So the idea is that they're using an existing power in the act. And the only thing is that there's a condition, which is that it has to be started by the minister. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> so you want the minister to decide when you're doing a market study. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. I gather this is hearsay. I don't have any evidence that there was some concern about just letting the commissioner decide what 
areas they wanted to do a market study in and then to be able to access compelability power. So they wanted to have some sort of check on that power. But I suspect that even if that, you know, that's true, I doubt anyone wanted a politician to be the one deciding. So that's mm. that makes people a bit queasy. But the, the, the thing itself, it connects to a power that's well established that the courts oversee. So I, I don't know that that's so much of a big deal. And so that's the government bill. The big question for me is just repealing the efficiencies defense. It makes for good headlines. It's like, yeah, let's get away. Let's get rid of it. But as I said earlier, no serious economist or antitrust lawyer will ever say, well, it's impossible for there to be pro-competitive benefits in a merger. So if you're eliminating the efficiencies defense as, as it is in the act, where are you taking into account pro-competitive benefits? Like, where is that going to go? The response I've had somewhat flippantly is to say, oh, well, it'll just be part of the, the, the assessment that's done in Section 92 of the Act, which is, you know, the, at where there's, you know, you have to look at a, a number of factors. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but how exactly are we going to do that? Is it just going to be one more factor in the list? And when you do that, do you import all the jurisprudence? There isn't a lot, but there are some court decisions that decide, like, what's an efficiency, what's allowed as an efficiency, um, how we go about quantifying things, which were one of the, some of the problems from the Trevita decision was saying the commissioner first has to quantify this deadweight loss, then the parties have to quantify. We really don't like qualitative evidence. We kind of hold our nose and we really prefer this total surplus approach, even though balancing weight ex exists. What happens to all of that? Just eliminating section 96 creates a huge legal ambiguity about how we're going to deal with efficiencies. So are we going to just relitigate this all over? It seems very foolish in my mind. Interestingly enough, the NDP has a very detailed answer to that question in their law. I think it will make many people freak out because it's quite a quite different approach where they take a sort of they basically say there are certain thresholds that are per se anti-competitive and you know if you can't demonstrate and then they shift the burden of proof if you have a really high market share you're going to have to prove uh, you'll you'll bear the burden rather than the commissioner. I don't know if that's going to have any legs. Mm. And the conservative bill is just let's get rid of section 96 exactly like the government. But I really worry, you know, we've talked about getting rid of the efficiencies defense, and I certainly was someone who was not a fan of the way it was, but I would never say that we should just forget about pro-competitive benefits. It's just how do we do it? And n maybe not as a separate step, but the, the idea that we can just wave a magic wand and make it go away is silly. But the bigger problem for me, very honestly, is that this drip, drip, drip of little changes here and there, that's not modernization of the act. There was a very important consultation that was done in the spring, it or it went from last November to March, and there were there was a huge amount of participation compared to what is normally the case. Normally, competition is like a snooze; people don't pay any attention to it. But uh, Roger Shaw certainly helped that, and the commissioner has been very, very proactive. Right? There were 120 submissions from organizations and academics, you know, agencies, foreign governments. The FTC put in a, a submission think tanks, uh, private firms, business and, uh, organizations. And that doesn't include the individual submissions from just individual Canadians. That's a lot of submissions. And those submissions are were done, I think, very much in good faith on the expectation that there would be a serious think about what we need to do, which starts with what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What what are our goals for competition? Right now, we have a certain number of stated goals for competition or s expected benefits that we 
we think come from maintaining competition? Do we need to rethink those? You know, that that's, you know, by doing these little amendments, you're actually sort of putting the the cart before the horse, but also you might you might limit your ability to make the changes you want to make because you're making decisions that are kind of based on the idea that you're going in a certain direction without really deciding that. So I worry that we haven't started from the big picture and worked down and said, okay, now that we know what we want to do, let's look at what we really need to change. Maybe we don't need to change as much. And let's look at what needs to be added, maybe what needs to be taken away, what needs to be sharpened. Uh, That's the way you do it instead of this way. But, you know, I'm not in charge. So So I would say there's still hope that there will be an actual serious second phase, like a serious, like, let's look at the act, let's do some bigger changes. But I don't know, because at the moment, there's this uncertainty about whether there might be an election and so forth. So what will happen if there's a new government? Will it get picked up? But for the moment, I would say there's this expectation that there should be more to come. And a little bit of disappointment that we're just doing this by little little bits, like this sort of like ticking a box and saying this. My final editorial comment on that is that they've packaged this bill as an affordability measure and as an anti-inflation measure, which is just patently false. And it you really know, bugs what? me. Competition reform is important, but not for not as an anti-inflation what, measure. What's up with the whole the inflation yeah, exactly. reduction? What, what is up with the with the narrative that this is that there are going to be certain updates that specifically target the grocers in this campaign to get grocery prices prices down? Is there? I'm guessing there's no validity to that, but I'm wondering if you could tease that out for us because that that is what the headlines are saying. I will not pretend that there isn't an affordability problem and that that people are not feeling the pinch. I, I think that that's undeniable. I think getting to the reasons for that is a lot more complicated than it appears in the sense that there isn't some easy answer. It, it's not that it's unknowable. It's just that I think it's not it's not a good headline grabber. There are a lot of factors that play into how food prices increase or de- decrease. And we certainly can have a serious conversation about what role do the large players in the grocery sector have? Groceries, is, you know, seems like a monolithic sector, but it isn't really. You have the big players, but then you have the budget players. You have like the small niche players. You have quite a lot of variety and consumers do actually like to have that variety. But the affordability question is is one that there I do think that that's actually something that needs to be addressed by socioeconomic policy and not by competition policy. What I worry about is, and this is the incongruity. You tell me if I'm if I'm out I'm out of line here. But we believe and assert that we want a capitalist system and that we want markets to decide things, and we don't want too much government regulation. And then on the other side, we want to tell the grocery the grocery chains what prices to charge. And I'm like, uh, that sounds really a lot like the Soviet system. And so it's it's just very striking to me that. On the one hand, you know, we absolutely believe in free markets and we don't want too much government interference. But when it suits us, we'd actually like to have the power to intervene. I'm like, you know, wage and price controls were attempted and they were deeply unpopular in the 70s. So I'm, I'm just curious. Now, maybe it has to go there, but that's a government policy to decide to intervene to set prices. But otherwise, we, I come back to the orthodoxy. We believe it's better when the market sets the price. Well, this is the market. Is it? Is there a fundamental competitive problem in the grocery sector because it's oligopolistic, which means it's got a concentrated 
you know, group who are at the top. Maybe, but I don't think we have the evidence of that yet. What we do have evidence of is that they got together and fixed prices on some things, although even that is hotly contested. There's only two two uh, players who've admitted any involvement in that. That's problematic. That's cheating. That's deliberate cheating. But it's not clear that that's across the board. So I guess that I am a little bit uncomfortable with the way the narrative is going, that somehow competition law can be leveraged to cause prices to fall. What you want is like there to be more competition. And, you know, the response of competition law would be, okay, do we need to break the grocers up? Do we need to have, you know, behavioral conditions, but not to actually say you shall set prices. And I know they haven't quite done that, but this whole idea of like a basket of cheaper goods, I just... It doesn't work with the overall sort of claim that we believe the markets work best. So we kind of, I think we have to pick a lane there. I I don't know that they can have it both ways. Um, And, you know, governments would just like the competition authorities to to do this because wage and price controls are unpopular. But I don't know how else you address the affordability issue. So the grocery sector has not helped itself by being a bit, I guess, unpleasant to deal with and maybe they haven't really taken the government seriously <laughs> that probably hasn't helped them but that doesn't that doesn't make the i call it just political theater that's going on really justified i mean getting all the grocers in one room with the minister like i they that's for show that's not really going to have any impact I, I think the popular narrative here is that more competition equals lower prices and i just want to make sure i'm understanding what you're saying which is and correct me, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that that's not necessarily so. Like prices and competition, maybe they're connected in some ways, but you know, high prices in groceries might not be related to competition at all. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, well, that is to say that it might not be related only to the rivalry between existing uh, firms who provide groceries at the retail level, right? Because okay. it, it's a vertically integrated industry for some players. Some players just sell. Some players have supply chains. And our supply chains are not just national or even local, right? They're also international. So we are affected by things like weather, the cost of inputs, uh, the, the cost of oil. Uh, these kinds of things do play conflict zones, which take out supply. And even if we didn't import from there, it shuffles the cards everywhere. I'm not saying that that's an excuse necessarily. And I'm not saying that there aren't practices that are occurring possibly in the selling of groceries that might that might contribute to the perception that there's a problem. But those might be, I think what I'm seeing is a lot more something that looks like deceptive marketing, like packages are smaller, but it's the same price. And you're not really alerting because, you know, and you can say, well, people should just notice, except that that's often... Uh, using well-known techniques where people just go by habit. Oh yeah, I see the blue bag the blue bag that, you know, I always buy and that yeah, I don't notice that it's now 500 grams instead of 750, for example. So there there's some of that, the shrinkflation kind of thing, but those are associated with sort of deliberate tactics and, you know, those those are subject to separate controls because that's sort of basically not not allowing the consumer to make an informed choice or kind of making it harder for the consumer to make an informed choice. That's different than saying you are somehow raising prices and that the reason you can get away with that is because there isn't enough competition with the other players. If that's the case, I don't think it has been demonstrated conclusively. 
Okay. Canada is a country of oligopolies, so we do tolerate higher prices, but I I'm not sure that we can we can make that assessment. And there are people much smarter than me who know this industry really well who could say the evidence is just not there. So competition is supposed to bring lower prices or whatever else the consumers value, whether it's better quality, better choice, you know, it's it's not just price is sort of like a substitute right. for all those things. But that's what should happen. I just think that you can't conclude because there's a small number of players, the cause of high prices is them not being pushed to charge, not being motivated to uh, charge the prices that are reflective of their costs, plus whatever the markup is that that would be reasonable in a competitive environment. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but so far the evidence hasn't really been yeah, just my last question here uh, before we we finish up. But you know, I think we we do have a few MPs who listen to the podcast from time to time. So my question is, if you had them in a room and the people who are drafting what will presumably be the second phase of uh, competition reform, what is the most important thing that you would want them to hear? Like, what's the one the the one most important thing that we should change about how we uh, deal with competition in this country? I would say that it's they, they should stop and ask themselves, what, what matters most to Canadians? What are our values? And how does competition law support those values? So in the Act right now, we say that we care about competition because it... Uh, makes our economy more efficient. It allows us to take our rightful place in the world, sort of our export-oriented economy. It allows small and medium-sized business to have an equitable share, although that is often disputed, and it's supposed to give uh, good prices and good quality to consumers. Those are the expected benefits of competition. There has been some discussion about whether that list is still accurate and reflective of what's important to us. And I think one of the things that's that's on everyone's mind is especially small and medium-sized business, but also you know the role of consumers and have we paid too much attention to efficiency versus other things. I think they have to sit down and say, you know, competition policy is a tool. It's a tool that's intended to make Canadians better off and for our economy to perform better, which supposed to be better for everyone, right? They need to think about, you know, what are our goals? Then you can start figuring out what the tools are. There's a lot of stuff happening internationally. There's a lot of experimentation happening. Not everyone is doing the same thing because we can't. You know, we all have different political and constitutional systems. We have different economies and geographies. But everyone is concerned about the same issues, you know, particularly increasing concentration of power in the hands of very few over things that really matter. You talk about gatekeeping, right? Um, where where do we want to go? Where where do we want to go? What are the values that will underpin the new Competition Act in the new economy of the 21st century? We haven't talked a lot about the new economy, but the new economy has all the features of digital artifacts, even though it's not, you know, I don't separate the digital from the real economy. They need to know what matters to us. Then you find the tools to implement that. And that's a hard, like that's a hard ask. It seems simple, but it's hard because it will require compromise. We have to decide what's most important. You can't have 15 things that are most important. You can have maybe a list of three, four, five things that matter. But that's where that's where they could provide the guidance. That's they're the elected representatives of Canadians. 
and they're supposed to capture, you know, what matters to Canadians in the way they deliberate. So that's the biggest contribution. Then you let the, you know, the experts and the technocrats come out with the, you know, the way that you can concretely achieve those things through whatever types of rules or recourse and so on. But I think that's the that's the thing that's missing is what's the vision? Where are we going? What do we want from our competition policy? Then, you know, we can we can figure out the rest. There's a lot of smart people who have opinions on it and we can we can certainly contribute to the debate. No one is right about everything, I might add, but the collision of ideas will provide lots of material. Okay, well, I think that's a great message to leave off on. Jennifer, thanks so much for this. This is a really interesting conversation. Well, thanks. It was a, a lot of fun to get to talk about these things and not have any time limit. It was fantastic. And that'll do it for our deep dive series on competition law in Canada. Hope you enjoyed this different format. Uh, If you did, please head over to the Apple Podcasts app or the Spotify Podcasts app. Leave us a positive review. Uh, Really appreciate that. And if you want more episodes of Free Lunch, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Professor Quaid for doing this with us. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.